This morning's scripture reading will be read from the book of Haggai, chapter 1, verses 12 through 15. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shatil, and Joshua, the son of Jezedek, the high priest with the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. And the words of Haggai, the prophet, as their Lord, their God, had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people of the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, and the son of Jezedek, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of the hosts, their God. On the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. You may be seated. Good morning. JT, that scripture reading was really well done. It's hard to read when it's like a, have so many names in there. I, I wish it was something like Tyler. You know, that, that might be a little bit easier to read. Uh, but appreciate the men who have led us in worship so far. Done a great job. It's been encouraging to be together this morning. If you have your Bibles, let's go to the book of Haggai. Haggai chapter 1, and we're going to study where JT just read for us in verses 12 through 15. Haggai chapter 1. Verses 12 through 15. If you had the opportunity to be with us last week, then perhaps you remember we spent some time in the first 11 verses of the book of Haggai. We were talking about our need to rebuild God's house. Our need to strengthen the church in areas where it's weak. Our need to build and to strengthen our relationships with God and our relationships with one another as Christians, as followers of Jesus, we have the need to make that our number one priority, to make that our number one pursuit in life. It was 587 B.C. whenever the Babylonians entered into and completely leveled the city of Jerusalem. They tore down the city walls. They burnt down every structure inside of the city walls, including the temple. The place where God was worshipped. The place where God dwelt among His people during that time. Once they destroyed the city, they subsequently took the people of Judah into captivity. Well, fast forward about 70 years. The Medo-Persians Medo conquer the Babylonians and become the next world empire. Under the reign of the Medo-Persians, the people of Judah were allowed to go back home. They were allowed to return to the city of Jerusalem, but remember, when they went back to Jerusalem, they were going to a city that had been completely destroyed. They were going back to a city that had been completely devastated, a city that had been lying in ruin for about 70 years. Whenever you look at something that's been destroyed, what's the next step? The next step is to rebuild. 
That's the title of the series of lessons that we're looking at from the book of Haggai, Rebuild. That's what the people of Judah did. That's what they're doing whenever we begin reading in Haggai chapter 1. They're going about this rebuilding process. They're rebuilding their homes. They're rebuilding their communities. They're rebuilding their infrastructure. But when you look in the first 11 verses of Haggai chapter 1, it becomes very clear that God has a problem with the people of Judah. God has a problem with, He takes issue with their rebuilding process and it's a problem with their priorities. They were prioritizing themselves over God. They were so busy rebuilding their homes, making sure their houses were nice and luxurious. Remember in in Haggai 1 a little bit earlier, God called it paneled houses. They made sure their houses were rebuilt in the most luxurious way. But look at God's house. It was continuing to lie in ruin. It was continuing to lie in destruction. They were rebuilding their own lives, making sure they had the food, the water, the clothing, the shelter, the money that they needed. But then God's house was still lying on the ground. It was lying in ashes. It was lying in ruin. It was lying in complete devastation. It's a problem with their priorities. In their rebuilding process, they were prioritizing themselves over God. And so God calls on them to consider their ways. He calls on them to think about how they're living and to shift their priorities. In their rebuilding process, God wanted His house to be their number one priority. He wanted His house to be their number one pursuit. Just like Jerusalem, we live in a city that hasn't experienced a great amount of destruction. Various parts of our city, various parts of our home have been completely devastated. When we look at the destruction, what's the next step? The next step is a process that many have already began. The next step is a process that we're going to be involved in into the foreseeable future. It's the process of rebuilding. Right now in Mayfield, there are so many who are rebuilding their homes. They're rebuilding their businesses. As a community, we're rebuilding our infrastructure. We're rebuilding our city. And that's a good thing. That's exactly what we should be doing. But whenever we look at the first 11 verses of Haggai chapter 1, maybe we need to take a moment as we enter into that rebuilding process to consider our ways. To think about our priorities. To ask the question, in this rebuilding process, what should our number one priority be? We can't get so caught up in rebuilding our own homes and businesses while allowing God's house to lie in ruin. We can't get so caught up in rebuilding our community that we allow the church, God's house today, to experience severe damage. We can't invest all of our resources and time and energy and effort into rebuilding Mayfield while at the same time allowing our relationships with God and our relationships with one another to lie in ashes We have to consider our ways. We have to think about our priorities. In this rebuilding process, what should the number one priority be? As we enter into this rebuilding process, our number one priority, just like with any other process, has to be God. It has to be His house, His church, our relationships with Him, and our relationships with one another. 
The question, though, as we continue in the book of Haggai, is how do we do that? In this rebuilding process, how can we make rebuilding God's house our number one priority? When we look out at Mayfield, and we see all the destruction, and we see all the devastation, when we look at our home and we see all the different structures and lives that need to be rebuilt, what is the process that we need to follow in strengthening our relationships with God and strengthening our relationships with one another? Well, it's interesting. As you continue reading in Haggai chapter 1, God not only tells them what to do, but tells them how to do it. If you go back to a verse we talked about last week, Haggai chapter 1 and verse number 8, God tells them what to do. This is the command. He says, go up to the hills, bring wood, and build the house. Make that your number one priority. Rebuild my house, God says, so that I might take pleasure in it and that I might be glorified, says the Lord. That's the command. Rebuild my house. Make that your number one priority. Now as we continue into the last few verses of chapter 1, which was read for us just a few minutes ago, we're going to see how the people of Judah responded to that command. We're going to see how they went about making God's house their number one priority when they looked at a city that had so much to rebuild. So let's think about this question. In our rebuilding process, how can we keep first things first? How can we make rebuilding God's house our number one priority when we look at everything that has to be rebuilt? How can we make sure that we rebuild and strengthen our relationships with God and our relationships with one another? I think there's three ideas in this text. Number one, if we're going to make rebuilding God's house our number one priority, according to verse 12, we have to obey God's voice. God gave them the command. We just saw it in chapter 1 and verse 8. Go up to the hills. Take wood. Get the resources that you need. And rebuild my house so that I might take pleasure in it and so that I might be glorified, says the Lord. That's the command. How did the people respond to it? Well, when you look at verse number 12, both the leaders and the people. The Bible says that Zerubbabel, who was the Persian governor, Joshua, who was the high priest, and all the remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. You know, usually in the Old Testament, whenever prophets would speak to God's people and tell them what to do, there usually was not a very favorable response. Usually, the people ignored the prophet. They persecuted the prophet. Jesus even talks about how they killed prophets. Well, here comes Haggai. He says, you need to make God's house your number one priority. What did the people do? They obeyed the voice of the Lord. They did exactly what God told them to do and made His house their number one prerogative in their rebuilding process. God told them to go up to the hills. So guess what? They went up to the hills. God told them to get the materials that they needed. So they got the materials that they needed. God told them, rebuild my house so that I can take pleasure in it and so that I can be glorified. And that's exactly what they did. They obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. This actually shows up in the text of Ezra. When you look at Ezra, Ezra chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, the prophets Haggai, who we're studying, 
And Zechariah, the son of Edo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. So look at their response, verse 2. It's the same thing we see here in verse 12, that Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Jehozadak, arose and began to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem, and the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. In rebuilding God's house, and making that their number one priority, they obeyed God's voice. They did exactly what God told them to do. But I also want you to notice in this text, this is not just an external obedience. This is not just them obeying God on the outside. It's kind of like whenever I was younger, and I would do something wrong to another kid, my parents would immediately make me apologize. Well, I didn't want to apologize. I was still mad. But guess what? I'd still apologize. I'd walk over to that kid, shuffle my feet over there. I'd mumble the words, I'm sorry, even though I didn't really mean it. I didn't want to get in more trouble. And so I obeyed what my parents told me to do on the outside. Maybe some of you did that too. I obeyed what my parents told me to do on the outside, but not so much on the inside. On the outside, I said I was sorry. But I can tell you, I wasn't so sorry and how I felt. I wasn't so sorry on the inside. That's not what you see with the people of Judah in Haggai chapter 1. This is not just an external obedience. No, this is an obedience that is rooted in their relationship with God. We saw in verse 2 last week that God didn't claim a relationship with these people. Remember how He said in verse 2, these people? He doesn't say my people. He says these people say that the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. God didn't claim a relationship with them, but when you skip ten verses down, there's a shift. There's a change. There's a contrast. The Bible says in verse 12, about midway through the verse, that they obeyed the voice of the Lord what? Their God. And the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord what? Their God had sent him. That's relationship. The people of Judah recognized they were God's people and God was their God. They recognized that they had a relationship with God and based on that relationship, they obeyed Him and did what He told them to do. But that's not the only thing. We also see that their obedience to God in verse 12 was rooted in their fear of God. Look at that. At the very end of verse 12, it might be easy to read right over. The Bible says that the people feared the Lord. Now this doesn't mean that they were terrified or frightened of the Lord. What this means is that they had a deep respect. They had a deep reverence for God. They had a deep respect and reverence for who God was. For what God had done for them. For what God had told them to do. Because they internally feared the Lord, they externally obeyed the Lord. Just like the people of Judah. If we're going to make rebuilding God's house our number one priority, then we must obey God's voice. We must have the same attitude that the Israelites had when they first heard the law of the Lord. In Exodus 24 and verse 7, what did they say? All that the Lord... Not just some. Not just the majority. Not just the things that I like or the things that are easy for me. All that the Lord has spoken, they said, we will do and we will be obedient. Instead of hesitating, 
Instead of asking questions, instead of pushing back, instead of being disobedient, we need to come together to be doers of the Word and not hearers only. In James chapter 1 and verse number 22, it's a question of reflection. Are we living in obedience to God? Make it more personal. Are you living in obedience to God? Am I living in obedience to God? Because I can tell you, we're never going to make rebuilding God's house our number one priority if we're not doing what He's told us to do. We're never going to strengthen our relationships with Him, and we're never going to strengthen our relationships with one another if we're not submitting ourselves in obedience to God and saying, all that you've told me to do, that's exactly what I'm going to do. I'm going to be obedient to your Word. Are we living in obedience to God? But that's not the only question. Another question that we need to ask is why are we living in obedience to God? This shouldn't just be something we do on the outside. Our obedience should not just be external where, okay God, I see what you tell me to do in your Word. There's a hundred other things I'd rather do. I don't really want to do it, but I guess I'm going to do it anyway. Now according to Haggai 1, we should have obedience that is rooted in our relationships with God. Jesus talks about that in John 14 and verse 21. He says, Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. This is not a business transaction. This is not something where I have to do it, even though I don't want to do it. No, we know God. And God knows us. We love Him and He loves us. God is not a stranger to us. We have relationships with God. He is our God and we are His people. Based on that relationship, Jesus says we are not only to have His commandments, but we are to keep them. We are to do exactly as God has told us to do. Our obedience is to be rooted not only in relationship with God, but in fear of God. Respect and reverence for His name. Paul says this in Philippians 2 and verse number 12, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Paul knew the church at Philippi. He knew their track record. He knew that they had always been obedient to God. That's what they had done in the past. So he says, keep doing it in the present. Just like you've been obedient to God in the past, work out your own salvation. Compare verse number 12 with the verse that comes after it in verse 13. He says, as God works in you, both to will and to work according to His good pleasure, verse 12, work out your own salvation. But how do you do it? With fear and trembling. We should have such a respect and such a deep reverence for God that we don't have any other choice but to obey Him. Our internal fear should produce external obedience. Number one, if we're going to make rebuilding God's house our number one priority, we must obey His voice. Number two, in order to make rebuilding God's house our number one priority in our rebuilding process, we must embrace God's presence. In verse 13, the Jews in Haggai 1 had a really big job sitting in front of them. I mean, take a second to think about it. The temple had been standing since the time of Solomon. And it was something that Solomon spared no expense in building. 
It's been lying in ashes and lying in rubble for the last 70 years. And now they have the responsibility to raise it up and to rebuild it in its former majesty and its former glory. It was a big task. It was something that was going to require a lot of them. It was going to require their energy, their effort, their resources, and their time. They were going to have to press pause on some of their other projects. Like we said last week, they were rebuilding their homes. They were rebuilding their lives. They're going to have to press pause on some of that in order to rebuild the house of the Lord and make that their number one priority. A huge undertaking. An undertaking that they wouldn't have been able to fulfill if they were left to their own devices. The good news in this text is that they weren't left to their own devices. God has a message for His people in verse 13. And it's a message that's so simple, yet it's so profound. It's a message that doesn't carry a lot of words, yet it's a message that carries a lot of weight. Notice verse 13, As the people obeyed the voice of the Lord and feared Him, Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. Now pause. Haggai, God through Haggai, could have said anything to the people of Judah at this point. What does God choose to say? What is the message that He chooses to give? Verse 13, I am with you, declares the Lord. Imagine the difference that that would have made. As they have this huge job, this huge undertaking, God's message to them is, I'm with you. As you obey My voice, I'm going to be the one who stands beside you. I'm going to be the one, God says, who fills you with strength. I'm going to be the one who guarantees your success. If you skip down just a little bit, we'll cover this verse, Lord willing, next week. But in Haggai chapter 2, and verse number 5, towards the end of that verse, God tells His people, My Spirit remains in your midst. It wasn't an in and out kind of thing. It wasn't that God's Spirit remained with them when things were easy, but then pulled out whenever things got a little bit difficult. It wasn't that God's Spirit was with them a majority of the time, but then had to go and take some breaks, and had to take a nap, and had to take a break to have a snack sometimes, and and had to be away for just a few minutes. No, God says, my Spirit is continually remaining in your midst. They couldn't have done it by themselves, but thanks be to God that they weren't by themselves. God was with them and their challenge was to embrace that presence. To draw comfort and encouragement and strength from the presence of a God who promised to continually be with them. If we're going to make rebuilding God's house our number one priority, we have to learn that same lesson. We have to learn to embrace God's presence. His continually abiding presence in our lives. I'm sure that you recognize that message that the Lord presents to the people of Judah, I am with you. This isn't the first time, nor is it the last time that He presents it to His people. For instance, if you go all the way back to Genesis 28 and verse number 15, God tells Jacob, who's also known as Israel, behold what? I am with you. And I'll keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I've done what I've promised to you. In Exodus 3 and verse 12, God speaks to Moses in the midst of his uncertainty. 
Moses wasn't quite sure if he could lead the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt and do what God was telling him to do. How does God respond to it? Exodus 3 and verse 12, But I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that I've sent you when you brought the people out of Egypt. You shall serve God on this mountain. Then you have Joshua. In Joshua chapter 1 and verse 5, it seems that he was afraid. It seems that he was intimidated to take up the reins of Moses to lead the people of Israel into the promised land. And God tells him at the end of that verse, just as I was with Moses, well, what did we just say in Exodus chapter 3? God says, I will be with you even though you're uncertain and you're not sure about this. I'm going to walk beside you. He tells Joshua, just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. In the midst of Gideon's doubts in Judges 6 and verse 16, God announces the message to him, but I will be with you and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. As Jeremiah was about to enter into a terribly hard ministry. A ministry where he was persecuted and where basically nobody listened to him. God told him in Jeremiah 1 and verse 8, don't be afraid of them because I am with you to deliver you. Throughout the Old Testament, so many different times, God looks at his people and says, I'm present in your life. I'm walking beside you. And what what blows my mind about that What I find to be so amazing in that promise is that Jesus Himself promises the same thing to us. In Matthew 28 and verse 18, He says, All authority in heaven and on earth is Mine. It's been given to Me. So go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, what? I am with you always even to the end of the age. Jesus looks at His followers and says, I promise to be with you. Not just some of the time, not just a majority of the time, but all the time. I'll be with you always, even to the end of the age. The very same God that made that promise to Joshua, or Moses, or Jeremiah, or the people of Judah in Haggai chapter 1. The very same God who made the promise to Jacob all the way back in the book of Genesis, I am with you, makes that very same promise to us. As we go about this rebuilding process, we have to acknowledge that. We have to learn to embrace that message. If we're going to make rebuilding God's house our number one priority, well, that's a big task. How can we do that? How can I strengthen my relationship with God? How can I strengthen my relationships with fellow believers? God says you have to recognize that you're not doing it alone. As Christians, we have to draw strength and encouragement and power from the fact that God Himself is walking beside us, from the fact that God Himself is the one who is strengthening us, from the fact that God Himself is the one who will guarantee our success. What did we say last week from Matthew 6.33? Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all these things will be added to you. When our number one priority is rebuilding God's house, He's going to be the one who rebuilds our houses. And we have to learn to trust that, to embrace God's presence. Then finally, number three, if we're going to make rebuilding God's house our number one priority, verses 14 and 15, we must respond to God's stirring. I don't know about you, 
but especially when I was younger, I guess it's still true now, but especially whenever I was younger, one of my favorite drinks was Kool-Aid. My favorite was the Tropical Punch, the deep red Kool-Aid. How do you make a glass of Kool-Aid? Well, you pour some water into the glass, pour some water into the pitcher, you pour in the amount of Kool-Aid that you need, leave it sitting there for about 10 or 15 minutes, go and do what you need to do, come back and you're going to have a nice glass of Kool-Aid, right? I don't see anybody saying no. If you make it that way, don't invite me over because I'm not going to drink it. If you're going to make Kool-Aid, of course, you fill up the pitcher with water, you pour in the Kool-Aid, but then what? You have to stir it up. You have to stir up the water, and when you stir up the water, it's magic. The mix mixes in with the water, and it starts to turn from clear to red. It goes from being the healthiest drink ever to probably the drink that has the most sugar that you could possibly take in. As long as the water remains stagnant, you're not going to get Kool-Aid. But whenever you stir up the water, that's whenever you're able to get not just water, but Kool-Aid. And the same thing is true with the people of Judah when we look in chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. As long as their spirits remain stagnant, as long as the waters of their hearts weren't moving, they were never going to be able to complete this task. It was going to be like the time they tried it before. They were going to get into it, and when it got difficult, they were going to back out and leave it. Like in Ezra chapter 1, Ezra chapter 2, chapter 3, and into chapter 4. So what did God do? Again, there's no distinction here. With both the leadership and the people, the Bible says He stirred up their spirits. In other words, He gave them an enthusiasm. He gave them an excitement for the job, for the task that was sitting in front of them. He gave them a passion for what they were doing. And the people of Judah responded to that. At the end of verse 14, when God stirred up their spirits, then they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. God stirred up the waters of their hearts. He gave them an enthusiasm and excitement, and they didn't allow the fire to go out. They responded to that stirring by doing what God wanted them to do. So how can we make rebuilding God's house our number one priority? We have to respond to God's stirring. Do you know what that feels like? Do you know what it's like for God to stir up your spirit? To stir up the stagnant waters of your heart? you know what it's like to feel such an enthusiasm and an excitement and a passion for what God is doing in the world? Specifically, what God is doing in your community? Can I ask you? you feel like your spirit's stagnant right now? Are the waters of your heart moving or are they standing still? Do you feel like you're spiritually stuck in the mud? If you do, what can you do this week to allow God to stir up your spirit? Maybe it's spending more time in Bible study. Maybe your Bibles remain closed too many days in a row. Maybe it's spending more time in prayer. Maybe it's spending time, intentional time, with your brothers and sisters in Christ because that's the command in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24. Let us consider how to what? Same phrase. How to stir up one another to love and good works. Sometimes the way that God stirs up His people is through His people. Through the relationships that we have 
with one another. What do you need to do this week to allow God to stir up your spirit, to stir up your heart? And once He does it, how are you going to respond to it? When God gives you an enthusiasm and a passion and an excitement for what He's doing in His church and what He's doing in this community, are you going to respond to it with obedience? Are you going to live out that passion and excitement or enthusiasm? Or are you going to let the water stop? Are you going to let the flame die out? It's no secret that in Mayfield we've experienced a lot of destruction. In Mayfield we've experienced a lot of devastation. We're entering into a rebuilding process, but we have to be careful that we don't fall into the same problem that we find in the book of Haggai. We have to consider our ways. We have to think about our priorities and to allow God, His kingdom, and our relationships with Him to always take that number one spot. But how can I do that? Maybe it's the case that you're looking at your life and your relationship with God isn't where it needs to be. Maybe it's the case that you're looking at your life and your relationship with the church is lying in shambles. It's lying in ruins. How can you take that and build it back up? How can you take your relationship with God and your relationships with the other Christians here at Seven Oaks, how can you take that and restore it, rebuild it to where it needs to be? Here are three ideas. Obey God's voice. God has told us what He expects from us throughout the pages of His Word. Live in obedience to that. All that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. Embrace His presence. Realize that everything that you do, you're not doing alone. God is the one who is beside you. And when your number one priority is rebuilding His house, He's going to rebuild your house. And then respond to God's stirring. Allow God to stir up your spirit this week. And respond to that by not just letting it be an emotional experience. Allow it to be something that actually makes a difference in your life. Respond to His stirring with obedience. Now, here's the beauty of this moment. In this moment right now, you have the opportunity to do all three of those things. You have the opportunity to obey God's voice. Have you been buried in the waters of baptism? Have you become a Christian the way the Bible says? Do you need to come back to the Lord because it's, it's a relationship that's distant and you recognize you're not where you need to be? Right now, you have the chance to obey His voice. You have the chance to embrace His presence. You have the chance. If He's stirring up the waters of your heart right now, you have the opportunity to respond to it. As together, we stand and sing.